following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, so we're getting into a new series this morning in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, if you're American, but I'm going to say Isaiah. Now, you should have, hopefully, uh, something that looks like this. Uh, if you were here last week, you got one. If you, if you weren't, there's a whole stack of them on the back table. Uh, and this gives you a few ways that you can engage with this series beyond just coming and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. We want this to be interactive. We want this to be something that, that helps you to grow and is more than just listening to a message. So uh, I'm going to have study sheets every week for this series that are available. Uh, they're in the blue box at the back today, and we'll have it online, that first one, in the next couple of days. Uh, but most importantly, there is a Bible reading plan that goes along with the series because what I would love you to do is read the book of Isaiah. Set that as your goal. Over the next five or six months, however long it takes to preach through it, set yourself the goal of reading through this book of the Bible. Uh, and I mean, you can do that however you want. You can do it just, just on your own. Uh, but we are linking in with a particular app to put a bit of structure around that if that's helpful for you. So there is an app called Read Scripture. I think we've got a slide, that icon there, that's the one you want to look for uh, in, the, in the App Store or Google Play. Download that app, it's free, uh, go, or you can just get it from, from the website, read scripture, but if you get the app, go in there, find the section on Isaiah, and it takes you through it in a series of modules, which you can do either each day. If you do them every day, you'll race through it in a few weeks, uh, but it, you can also just set it to read at your own pace, and then you just work through those modules. If you go into the first module this week, uh, what all that means is that in the coming week, try to read Isaiah 1 to 4, okay? That's what it will guide you through. And there's a little video too. These, these guys from the Bible Project, they do awesome videos helping you to get an understanding of the whole book. So watch the video if you've got time, and then read Isaiah chapter 1 to 4 this week. Up to you how much you read each day and how you structure that through your week. It's not quite as specific as exactly this bit every day. You just figure it out, four chapters over the course of the week, and you've got the assurance of knowing that there's a whole lot of your church family members going through the same passages at the same time. We're on this journey together, and then hopefully, when you show up next week, you know this, this stuff is in your head a little bit more, and you come to these times with a little bit more familiarity, a little bit more openness to God speaking through His Word, awareness of what's happening, and then I think you will gain so much more from this series. So whether or not you've got a pattern in your life of reading scripture regularly. Uh, make this a step that you start and engage with, and you can do it today. I read the first half of Isaiah 1 this morning. That was my kickoff, and so uh, I'm underway, and uh, if you've got any issues, no questions, don't know how, can't get the technology working, whatever, email us, and uh, we'll, help you, we'll help you figure it out. But let's go on this journey together. All right, so as we start the series in Isaiah, uh, I want to put a quote on screen. It introduces us to this book. It says, here it is, I'm sure it's coming. Isaiah is at once elegant and sublime, forcible and ornamented. He united energy with copiousness and dignity with variety. In his sentiments, there is uncommon elevation and majesty. In his imagery, the utmost propriety, elegance, dignity and diversity, and notwithstanding the obscurity of his subjects, a surprising degree of clearness and simplicity. Now, that's ironic because you need a dictionary to look up half of those words. It's, it's, not, it's not the clearest quote in the world, is it? But you know, his point is well made, Robert Loth. Uh, what he's saying is that when we come to this book of the Bible, when we approach the book of Isaiah, we are coming to one of the great pinnacles in the entire biblical story. Uh, we, Isaiah has been called the prince of prophets. 
and for good reason. It, it, it is the first of the prophets in our Bible. It's the first of the prophetic books that you come to after the, the poetry books. Uh, and Isaiah just seems to tower above the rest. It just seems to have this monumental place in its, in its scope and in its size and in, in, the, in the sweep of what Isaiah encompasses. It just has this massively panoramic view of everything. Isaiah gives us this stunningly huge vision of who God is. And that's what we're gonna gain through this series, this, this magnificent view of the Holy One of Israel, the God of armies, the God of angel armies, the God who is exalted and enthroned above the circle of the earth, this incredible picture of Yahweh. That's the name God has in the Old Testament. I am who I am, Yahweh. We're gonna gain this huge view of God. We're gonna gain a view of God's purposes and plans on earth as Isaiah unfolds them, speaking the word of the Lord. Isaiah's purposes, God's purposes for, for Israel and then for the nations and then for the whole earth and then for all of creation. Uh, Isaiah is gonna take us to the soaring heights of heaven. He's gonna plunge us to the depths of God's judgment. We're gonna get some pretty sobering stuff about the gravity of human sin. And we're gonna have to wrestle with that. But then he's gonna lift us out of that again into these magnificent vistas of God's salvation and mercy and glory and hope. Isaiah is a book that stretches across the length and breadth of history. It stretches the width of the cosmos. It is absolutely breathtaking in its scope. But because of that, this I think is why a lot of people don't read Isaiah because it's so vast and so huge, and people get daunted by it. It's a monumental book. It's one of the longest in the, in the Bible, 66 chapters. And, and you sort of look at Isaiah a bit like a big ocean. And I think most of us are kind of comfortable paddling in the shallows a little bit when it comes to books like Isaiah. Uh, you know, we don't mind going into the ocean, maybe just up to our knees, just where it's safe. And maybe you know a few verses from Isaiah. Maybe if, you, if you've been around church, if you've gone through Sunday school, you might know some of the well-known verses in there, like the one about eagle's wings uh, that, that, that we sung about. And you might know a few of these things. But we tend to just kind of keep in the shallows because that's where it's comfortable and that's where it's safe. And we sort of feel like, oh, the rest of it, that's just like this big foreboding ocean. You know, I don't want to go out into the big waves. I, you know, I don't want to go out too, there could be sharks out there. We don't know what's out there. And so a lot of Isaiah remains a mystery, kind of an intimidating, foreboding sort of book. But what we're gonna do over these next few months, we're going out into the deep waters, all right? We're gonna do it. We're ready for it. We're going out. We are going out into the ocean. We are just gonna jump into the ocean of Isaiah, plunge ourselves into it, <clears throat> and find that God will help us to swim after all. So we're, we're gonna get out of the shallows, all right? It's not just gonna be paddling in the shallows time. We're going into the deep waters and... I hope that through that, some of the mystery will become clear, but I also hope that not all of it will, because there's something about Isaiah. We don't want to lose all the mystery. You know, there's something about Scripture, and, and of course, God, that is utterly mysterious. As soon as we think we've got this stuff all figured out, we've become far too confident and proud. So we're going to leave a lot of that mystery, but just to, just to experience the beauty and the wonder and the depth of Isaiah, we are going to wade right into it and wrestle and grapple with it uh, as best God enables us to. So the way I want to start the journey today is just to look at one verse of Isaiah. All right, we're going to start this journey. We're just going to look at Isaiah 1.1 this morning. Now, I promise after today, we will pick up the pace. Uh, we're not just going to do one verse every week or else the series would take us about 79 years to get through. That's a number I just made up. But 
We are just going to do one verse this morning, and uh, I often do this at the beginning of a series because it just helps us to get our bearings, all right? just to get an overview of a book of the Bible, understand a little bit about who wrote it and why and, and who it was written to and get that orientation, and then we will hit the ground running next week. So this message is not going to be quite as full of deep, meaningful life application. All right, I still hope that God speaks to you through it, but this message is going to be by necessity a little bit more teachy uh, this morning, but we're laying the groundwork. Okay, that's what's happening. We're laying the groundwork for uh, what is yet to come in this series. So Isaiah 1.1, just one verse to whet our appetite this morning. Here it is. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So what we get in that verse is a helpful little introduction to the where and the who and the when of Isaiah. So that helps to orientate us. We get some answers to the basic questions that we want to know about this book. First of all, we get the where. Where is this uh, book taking place? Where are these people based? Well, Isaiah tells us, Judah and Jerusalem. Now we've got a little map here, I think. Uh, so you can see, uh, th- this is a time in the Old Testament time, it's about eight centuries before Jesus, and this was a time when Israel had broken into two nations uh, because of civil war. And so you have Israel, the much larger nation in the north, much more powerful force, retained 10 tribes of the original. Uh, And then in the south, the much smaller, weaker nation of Judah. But what Judah had going for it is it had Jerusalem, uh, which means it had the temple, a very important place, very important point. And so Isaiah's ministry is based in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's who he's speaking to. Isaiah's based in Jerusalem. That's where he lives. And he's speaking to the Judites, to those living in Judah. That's the the immediate context of his ministry. Uh, And so we we always want to try, when we're reading Scripture, to put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of those who first heard these words, rather than assume this is just coming directly to us. We're hearing these words in a secondary sense, but they were first written to these Judites living in the 8th century BC. So we want to understand who they are and get inside their experience a little bit as we go through the series. But just because Isaiah speaks to these people of Judah, it doesn't mean that he's only ever speaking about Judah. It doesn't mean that geographically he only ever talks about that little patch of land. There's times when Isaiah talks about all sorts of other nations. He's talking to the people of Judah, but sometimes he'll talk to them about the surrounding nations, and he'll give prophecies about some of these broader nations that surrounded Judah. There's times when Isaiah talks about the whole earth, and his field of vision is as wide as the earth itself. There's times when that even stretches right right out to creation. The entirety of the cosmos can be in view, but he's still talking to an audience that is based in the kingdom of Judah. So we need to keep anchored and grounded in the original audience that this was spoken to, understand their world, and then let the text speak to us from there into our contemporary situation today. So that's the where of Isaiah and who he's speaking to. And then we get a bit of the uh, who. Who is this guy, Isaiah? Well, all we're told in this verse is that he is Isaiah, son of Amos. Uh, Now, that's not the same dad as the prophet Amos. Okay, so don't get those two confused. There is a book in the Bible called Amos. It's not the same. It's it's different English spelling, and it was a different Hebrew name. Uh, We don't know much about Isaiah's family. In fact, we don't know that much about Isaiah at all. Uh, We wish we knew more, considering what a monumental book this is. But the biographical information we have on Isaiah is actually fairly sketchy. We just know bits and pieces from what he tells us. Uh, We know that he lived in Judah, 
we know that he had a wife. Uh, he just calls her the prophetess in his book. We know that he had at least two sons. He mentions them. In the book, so he was a family man. He had a family around him. Uh, beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. We know that he had access to speak before kings. So somehow he was able to enter the royal court and address kings. So whether there was something about him that gave him that particular privilege. Uh, there's a tradition, there's a Jewish tradition that Isaiah was eventually killed by being sawn in half. Yeah, it's pretty grisly, right? There's a verse in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, that talks about some you know, prophets and others that met all of these terrible ends, and one of them was to be sawn in half. And traditionally, Jews believe that was attributed to Isaiah. So maybe one of the kings got sick of him and sentenced him to execution by being sawn in two. It's like a magician's trick gone horribly wrong. Uh, and maybe, we don't know, that's speculative. We don't know exactly how he died, but there's, there's a tradition for you. Uh, another thing we know about Isaiah is that he had a very long ministry that he prophesied for between 65 and 70 years. Uh, that's how long he was called to speak to the people on behalf of God. We know that because in the next part of this verse, we get a bit of the when. We get some, some kings mentioned that help us to place the dates of Isaiah. We get these four kings of Judah mentioned, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Now, I've got a little timeline chart there for you so you can see. I won't go through it in detail, but you can see there where and when those kings reigned, and you can see that if Isaiah's ministry, he received his commission in the first year of King Uzziah, and he prophesied all the way to the 15th year of Hezekiah, which means his ministry is getting towards 70 years long. That's a long time for a prophet. I mean, that prophet, being a prophet's not an easy job, right? There was, there was no health and safety, you know, um, parameters around this job. There was a lot of workplace bullying, yeah, there, was, there was a lot of abuse, to be honest. That when, If you're a prophet, I mean, Isaiah had a hard time. And God tells him right at the outset, we'll look at this, but God basically tells him when he's commissioned, he's like, by the way, the people are not going to listen to you. I'm commissioning you. I'm sending you. Go. This is my word. And by the way, the people will reject you. And he knew that at year one, that he was going to be resisted. And yet he prophesied faithfully for 70 years enduring the rejection and the hostility of the people. If you're struggling with something that God's called you to right now, just remember Isaiah. Remember his faithfulness, decade after decade after decade. Wasn't an easy job, but he hung in there through four successive kings and spoke the word of, the God, word of God to the people that needed to hear it. So that's the timeline of his ministry, and he particularly interacts with these two last kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah. We'll read about them. And Isaiah talks to them directly. He, uh, he communicates with them and challenges them and encourages them at different points. Now, just staying with this timeline thing for a minute, this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting in Isaiah because Isaiah is here living in the, in the 8th century before Jesus. Okay, That's where he's based. That's when he lives. But as you read this book and you get into the, the latter half of the book, it seems like Isaiah is talking about things that happen a long time after his own life. In fact, he even mentions a guy by name, Cyrus, King Cyrus, who lived hundreds of years after Isaiah. After all these kings were dead and buried, Cyrus comes along, and yet Isaiah mentions Cyrus by name. So what's going on here? Well, some people take this as evidence for the fact that Isaiah just wrote some of the book, and maybe someone else wrote part of the book later on. But this is where we need to come back to the identity of Isaiah as a prophet. That as a prophet, he didn't just speak his own words. 
He didn't just talk about his own ideas. He didn't just speak his own opinions. He spoke the word of the Lord. And he saw what God wanted him to see. And he spoke what God wanted him to say. And that included things far beyond his own day. Because if the God who created the universe could give Isaiah words to say, could God not reveal to him things that were coming after his own day? God can and God did. And so we find that as you read Isaiah, here's Isaiah living in the 8th century, and he's talking about some things going on in his own day. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about Assyria. It's, it's the immediate stuff. But then Isaiah can see something. He can see beyond his own day. He can see beyond his own time. He can see centuries into the future. So he doesn't put dates on it, but he can just see this, this field of vision that stretches way, way, way out ahead of him. And he is privileged to be able to see visions of things that would have come hundreds of years into the future. That's what makes Isaiah such a stunning book for us, is that his field of vision goes way beyond his own day and, as we'll see, even beyond our day. Like he saw things that have still not yet happened. That's, that's how vast God's revelation to Isaiah was. So, you with me so far? Okay, all right, tracking. Let, let me just unpack this a little bit with an illustration because this, this, the way in which Isaiah sees things, the way in which we see things, it's important to understand in order to engage with this book. Okay, let me give you an illustration. Uh, last year, our family spent some time in Vancouver on my sabbatical. And Vancouver's a beautiful city. It's set against a mountain range on the northern side of the city. You've got a beautiful mountain range, these, these snowy or snow-capped mountains. And as you're standing at the harbour, on the edge of the harbour in, in the centre of Vancouver in the city, you look across the harbour to the mountains on the north side, and it all looks like just one line of mountains. You can tell that there's differences by the different shades. You can tell that there's different mountains there, but it all just looks like one row. It looks like the mountains are all fairly tightly clustered together. Uh, they're just in one singular line and it's just one mountain range. That's the vantage point you have of looking at the mountains horizontally. But imagine that you were to hire a plane, uh, we didn't do this, but hire a plane and fly over those mountains heading north. Your vantage point would be totally different, wouldn't it? If you're flying over those mountains and now you're looking down on them, you see them in a different way. And as you get closer to the mountains and you pass over them, you realize that th those mountains are not close together at all, but they're very spread out. And you pass over one mountain peak and you realize that between this mountain peak and the next one, there's a deep valley that goes down and up again. And then you pass over the next mountain peak and you realize that the, the one after that is, is still in the distance and these mountains are, are significantly separated out. Now, the difference in perspective that you have standing in the harbour looking at the mountains horizontally and flying over the mountains looking down at a bird's eye view, that's the difference between how Isaiah saw these visions when God revealed them to him and how we see these visions today. So when Isaiah is, is writing this stuff and when he's receiving these words from God, and these, these visions from God. It's like he's looking at the mountains horizontally. That's the picture he gets. So, so he just writes what he sees. And it's a, it's a cluster of different images. And, and, and he puts the language around it that God gives him. And he sees all of these things together. And it's like looking at a mountain range. And there's different textures and different, different colors there. But it's all kind of one thing. And it just looks like one, one vision. 
But the advantage that you and I have now, we are separated from all of that by almost 3,000 years now. And with the passing of time, it's like now we are flying over that mountain range that Isaiah saw. And we can see now that even though when you read Isaiah, it looks like some of these events and people and happenings are tightly clustered together. That in fact, with the passing of time, there is significant distance between them. And there is significant time between the events that Isaiah saw. He could be writing about a particular vision in one one particular chapter of Isaiah. And in the space of a few verses, what looks like all one vision, and it is one vision, may contain insight into things that happened hundreds of years apart. There may be three or four different time periods going on. But to read it all as one vision, it's all clustered and sort of jumbled together, still incredibly crafted. But it all looks like one when, in fact, it may refer to several different time frames. And we will try and tease these time frames out as we go. What I want to do now is just give you a quick little bird's eye view, a quick little flight over the mountains, so to speak, and just introduce you to the four mountain peaks that Isaiah saw. Okay, there's a lot in Isaiah, but there's four time periods that he's primarily got in mind. And this, I hope, will be helpful for us to keep in mind as we go through the book. So the first mountain peak that Isaiah sees, as he's recording what God gave him to write, is the time period of his own day. In the 8th century BC, the people of Judah, all the things that were worrying them, all the things that were concerning them, The attack from Israel, attack from Assyria, the the immediate concerns of the people of his own day. That's the first mountain that Isaiah sees. And there's plenty of stuff in this book just about that. And that's still relevant to us. We can still learn from it. But Isaiah is talking to the people of Judah about stuff going on in the 8th century. That's the first mountain that he sees. But there is a second mountain. The second mountain that Isaiah sees is two or three hundred years after his own day, the period of the exile and the return. Now, this is a time when the people of Judah were finally conquered by the Babylonians. And many of their best and brightest were deported out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, and repatriated way off east in Babylon, where they lived for 70 years. And then with the turning of the political tides, King Cyrus, that's where he comes in, the Persian king, allows the, uh, the Judites to return home 70 years later. That's the exile and the return. And some of what Isaiah writes about, particularly in the latter half of the book, applies to that time in Israel's history, the time of the exile and the time of the return, giving hope, encouragement, and challenge to the people living in that day. That's the second mountain peak. Now, the third mountain peak that Isaiah sees, this is the most significant and exciting one of all. Isaiah sees forward, all the way forward to the time of the Messiah. And this is just one of the beautiful things about Isaiah. This is one of the reasons Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Because alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Isaiah, of all people, gives us one of the most stunning insights into Jesus. Because as he sees and he looks at what God is revealing to him, one of the things God reveals to him is the coming of the Messiah. Now, Isaiah never uses the word Messiah. He never uses the name Jesus, but he describes the Savior, the Deliverer, in a lot of different ways. Describes him as the the one who will sit on David's throne, as the one who will bring about God's eternal kingdom. Describes him as the branch of Jesse that will come up, shoot up from the stump 
that's there, that Israel had become this branch that will just shoot up. He describes him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the one whose reign and government will know no end. He describes him as the servant, the faithful servant of Yahweh who suffers on behalf of his people. All of these are images of Jesus. Now, Isaiah just wrote what he saw, but these we see now are all things pointing to the coming of Jesus, and every one of them gives us a different perspective on who Jesus is, on on the nature of his person and his work and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. They're all there in Isaiah. If you want to understand the life of Jesus, one of the best places you can start is in the book of Isaiah because he saw it, and he contains the promises which are fulfilled in Jesus. That's why Isaiah is such a significant book, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Isaiah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, alongside Psalms. Psalms and Isaiah are the two books that are quoted the most in the New Testament. Right through, there are quotes from Isaiah, there are allusions to Isaiah, right from Matthew chapter 1 to Revelation 22. All the way through, Isaiah is is being drawn on. And don't forget, Jesus himself leant heavily on the book of Isaiah. Jesus knew this book. I mean, that alone is a reason to study it, yeah? That this book was close to Jesus' heart. He knew it. This was part of his Bible. This was part of the Bible Jesus had and Jesus read. And as a Jewish boy growing up, he would have memorized Isaiah along with the rest of the Hebrew Bible. He would have had it locked in there because teenagers, when you're that age, you've got memory. Yeah, Those of us that are older, we can't remember a thing now, but you're at an age, you can remember stuff. This is a great time to remember scripture and get it into your life and get it into your head because you can remember. Jesus, think about this. He had all of Isaiah just locked in there. He had it, 66 chapters of Isaiah, just locked and loaded. And so it's no surprise that as he's going through his ministry, he's talking about Isaiah. And he'll be doing things, and he'll be drawing on Isaiah and saying, well, this is what the prophet said would happen. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, as they're talking about Jesus and telling his story, they draw on Isaiah. Well, this happened. Jesus did this to fulfill what Isaiah said. And this is what Isaiah talked about. And now look what Jesus is doing. It's all happening. And so Isaiah provides the promise of which Jesus is the fulfillment. And Jesus himself treasured this book and it became a central part of his life and ministry. So this is the third mountain peak that Isaiah saw, the time of the Messiah. And he was granted incredible insight to be able to see who was coming. He only saw it like looking into a fog. We see a lot more now, but he still saw the coming of Jesus. And then one final mountain peak. Okay, so Isaiah is granted this extraordinary access to be able to see all the way from his day in the 8th century BC, all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring about when Jesus returns again. Now that is still future to our day. We don't know how long it's going to be till Jesus returns, but Isaiah saw some of that as well, that he saw these pictures of what will take place When God finally brings this age to a close and brings about this new world, this new heavens and new earth, and he saw it and he describes it with these beautiful images. He talks about people were going to beat their swords into plowshares. They're going to beat their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, violence will be replaced by peace, shalom, reconciliation between people and communities and even nations. He talks about how instead of the the thorn and the thistle, 
the briar and the myrtle will grow. In other words, there will be abundance, there will be uh, equality, the land will be good and fertile, and there will be enough for everybody. He saw these beautiful pictures of what will, what will come about when God finally intervenes in human history and draws that day to a close. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Some of you know that one? And a little child will lead them. That's the image. Now, this is metaphor. It's imagery. We don't know how much all of this stuff will literally be fulfilled, but he's, he's, he's drawing these images and pictures that God gave him to describe this world of abundance and, and beauty and justice and truth and most of all, the presence of Yahweh finally with his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. And we will dwell on with God, those of us that love him and follow him, for all eternity. Isaiah got to see some of that. Now, he's not the only one in the Bible. We piece that picture together from many books, but Isaiah saw some significant things that form a big part of our understanding and vision of what that new creation will be like. And we'll dip into that at times, and we'll try and get our hearts and imaginations around what that is going to look like, what the new creation is going to be like. So you see how vast his view was? I mean, he could see these four mountain peaks, and you can be reading a chapter like Isaiah 9, and it looks, it's, one, it's one vision, but inside that vision, Isaiah is seeing mountain one, two, three, and four. Now, he wouldn't have described it like that, and he didn't always delineate these things clearly himself. But with the passing of time, we know that he can be talking about significantly separated events, things separated by hundreds, even thousands of years. He can talk about them in the space of one or two verses. So that's important to understand as you're reading Isaiah, and we'll do our best in the series to try to sort of parse that out and help us understand what is Isaiah seeing and where in the story does this relate to. Still with plenty of mystery, because no one's figured this out completely, but we'll just try and put some pieces in place so that we get a better understanding of what he saw. All right, let me add one final piece to this picture, and that'll be enough for today. Come back to this image of the mountains, uh, the mountain range. We've got these four mountain peaks. I want you to now imagine that running right through this whole mountain range, running north, are two rivers. Okay, we're just building on the picture. Two rivers that just snake their way through the mountains, dovetailing together all the way. Now, these rivers represent the two central themes of the book of Isaiah. And those themes are, quite simply, judgment and hope. Those are the two rivers that run right the way through, and they will run the right the way through this series because that's, that's what Isaiah talks about. He talks about a lot of different things, and there's so much texture and so much color and flavor, but these themes just continue to work their way through the entire book. And you could think about it this way. Isaiah divides quite neatly into two halves, chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. It's kind of like the Old and New Testament. You know, you've got these two halves of Isaiah. The first half, chapters 1 to 39, primarily about judgment, but still with plenty of hope sprinkled along the way, don't worry. And then you get into the second half, it's primarily hope, but still with a little bit of judgment as well. So those are the dominant themes that go on from judgment to hope. And that kind of creates the flow of how Isaiah sees things. But these, these themes of judgment and hope, they work their way through all four of the mountains. So think about that. You know, Isaiah is talking to his own people in their own day about their own concerns, but he's talking to them in terms of judgment and hope. He's saying God's going to bring judgment. 
because you're unfaithful and you're running off after all these idols that all the nations around you run after. There is judgment coming, but there is also hope. Come now, let us reason together. We'll look at this next week. God speaks this word of unconditional grace to his people and says, if you would only receive my mercy, your sins are like scarlet, but I'll make them white as snow. That's the word of grace. You see, that's the word of hope. Wherever there's judgment, and there's plenty of it in Isaiah, never far behind is a word of hope. You only have to look around the neighborhood a little bit, and you'll find it. Judgment and hope. Isaiah then sees that second mountain of exile and return. And again, it's a picture of judgment and hope. The exile is the great act of judgment in the Old Testament. God allows his people to be conquered and deported. It's an act of his judgment. It's not just a geopolitical event. It's an act of divine judgment. It's revealed as such. But even in exile, there is hope. Comfort my people, says Isaiah in chapter 40. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her sins are paid for, her hard service is completed. And there's that word of hope, that beyond exile, there is hope. Beyond judgment, there is restoration. There is going to be a homecoming for the people of God, and it's going to be like when God pulled off the exodus and part of the Red Sea, he's going to do it again. That's the hope and the anticipation. And then Isaiah sees through to the third mountain, the coming of the Messiah, and again, he talks about it in terms of judgment and hope. The coming of Jesus, you think of Jesus' death. It's, a, it's an act of God's judgment upon sin. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He suffered because of our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus was punished. The Messiah was punished. It was an act of judgment. And yet in that act of judgment, there is incredible hope that by his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions so that by his righteous life, my servant will justify many. We have this incredible hope of being reconciled with God, becoming his children, becoming part of his kingdom because of Jesus, because of the coming of the Messiah and his ministry. So judgment and hope again. And then finally, Isaiah sees it in the new creation. You get all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And again, it's judgment and hope. It's the final judgment for those who have rejected and refused God's love. It's eternal judgment. But then it's hope for those who have embraced God's offer of grace and love. It is eternal and unconditional hope. On and on and on through eternity. So judgment and hope, judgment and hope continue to wind their way through the story. And they are perhaps the two themes that you can keep in mind to help anchor you and orientate you in this series. So that's Isaiah in a nutshell. That's a quick little introduction. Uh, I called this series On Eagle's Wings, A Journey Through Isaiah. And, and some of you, maybe that phrase is familiar. It's from a verse in Isaiah 40, chapter, verse 31, where Isaiah says, let me read it to you. He says, those who hope in the Lord or those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And that is not just a promise for the people of Isaiah's day. That is a promise for us today. And that is exactly what we are going to do through this series, through this journey. We are going to wait upon the Lord. Those who hope in the Lord, those who wait upon the Lord, that's what we're going to do. We're going to wait upon the Lord. We're going to trust that just as God spoke through his servant Isaiah almost 3,000 years ago, he is going to speak afresh today. He is going to speak his word afresh into our lives and circumstances today. Do you believe that? 
Or is this just something that happened millennia ago? God is here. His word is active. It is alive. It is relevant. And he is going to speak his word afresh as we wait upon him. That's why Isaiah said, whenever God speaks, his word does not go forth without accomplishing the purpose for which he sends it. In other words, as we hear God's word spoken into our lives and circumstances today, something's going to happen. God's word never returns void. It never returns without accomplishing something. As you hear God's word, something's going to happen if you're open to hearing it. Something's going to click. Something's going to change. God is waiting to speak. He's waiting. Isaiah says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He rises up to show compassion to you. Our God is a God of justice. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the promise of God that he is here. Do you believe this? That he is here longing to be gracious to you, longing to speak. So we should approach this book, this series with some expectancy that God will speak. He will move. He will touch your life, transform your heart and lead you forward. As we wait upon the Lord, Isaiah says, we will gain new strength. We'll rise up like, like having the wings of eagles. We'll rise up above our own immediate circumstances, all the things that are going on in your life, all the highs and the lows and the joy and the pain and the tedious stuff as well, all of the stuff of life. We will rise up on wings like eagles and we'll be able to see more clearly what God has for us to see. We'll see God himself more clearly through his word. We'll see God's plans and purposes more clearly. We'll see, I think, our world more clearly. We see it as it is, but we're going to learn to see it as God sees it. And we will see, God willing, ourselves more clearly as God wants us to see ourselves as his children. And we will gain that new strength that Isaiah talks about so that we will walk and not grow weary, run and not Grow faint. I want to encourage you to have that kind of expectant heart to believe that as we hear God's word through this book, that his word is living and active and God is longing to pour his renewing presence into your life afresh. He's longing to pour his grace into your life afresh. He's longing to pour his power into your life afresh. Wherever you are, he will meet you at your point of need. He will come alongside you and by his strength and by his grace, he will move you on in your journey of faith as you gain a bigger picture of who he is and a bigger picture of who you are. So let's approach this book and this series with expectant hearts, with an anticipating heart, with openness of heart, willing to have God search our hearts and reveal what needs to be revealed, but not so that we'd be condemned, so that we would hear again his voice of grace, that we'd be renewed and find new strength in him. That's the journey, and it all starts next week. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that Isaiah, your servant, said that the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, God, we come to this book, this ancient book, and we just want to say at the outset of this journey that, God, we are open. We're open to hearing what you want us to hear, and we know, God, at times that is going to mean being challenged. And at times, that's going to mean being uncomfortable. At times, that's going to mean being disturbed. And so we want to just say right here and now, God, that we, we're open to that. And that when those moments come, those moments that, that are not pleasant, because your word is, is, is sometimes a confronting word, that, God, we're still willing to hear it. We're not going to block that out. We're not going to hide our face from you. We're not going to turn away. We're going to receive it. 
And we're going to receive it, God, because we know that even when that hard word comes and is spoken into our lives, it is not a word of condemnation, but it's a word that comes to set us free, that you're a God who wants to set us free. You're a God who has good things to pour into our life. You're a God who wants to lift us up, to renew us, to set us on our feet, to rise us up like wings of eagles. And so, God, we just want to come with a posture of openness to your spirit, openness to your word, to say, God, here we are. Open our eyes. Challenge us and change us and lead us forward to be the people that you're calling us to be in your strength and by your grace. We pray these things for your glory, the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.